Welcome to Acamedia, a podcast from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Man, those prepositions are just rolling off your tongue. Flowing now. I got the summer flow going. I am yeah. Christine Becker. I am Michael Kackman. Uh, we are both at the University of Notre Dame, although we are not both at the University of Notre Dame. Oh, listen, listen, that <laughs> preposition usage there. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. It's summertime. I'm down in, in Georgia, and I feel like we'll be like the 1,000th podcast to tell you, stay cool out there, kids, because it's mm. hot. It's actually hotter other places than than here. Like for a time, I think it was hotter in South Bend than it was down in Georgia. It was like way hotter in London than here in Georgia. So strange times. Yeah, it is weird times. Stay cool. Be careful. Yeah. Take care of those pets and uh, old folks. Yeah. And pop open Instagram and look for hot men with hummus. And that will make sense yeah. in just a moment. I, I when think we... it's hot dudes. Hot dudes, excuse me. Yeah. I was I was trying to elevate it, which is <laughs> where I went wrong. Yeah. No, no, no. No, we're we're not elevating here. No. That's, no. That's not well, our business. But our business is pictures of food. Yeah, and we will be elevating the discourse around here because we got some super smart people talking about uh, Food Instagram. This is actually a new collection, Food Instagram, Identity, Influence, and Negotiation from University of Illinois Press. And this is edited by Emily Contois and Xenia Kish. Yeah, and our own Stephanie Brown put together a conversation uh, between the two editors as well as some of the contributors uh, in this book. And made this like super snazz, polished up, glossy, gorgeous episode. Yeah, this is basically they delivered us some, you know, an Acamedia bite all in itself. And we just have to say hello and say goodbye. And so thank you, everyone, for this great work. This is really good stuff. It is really nice to hear about uh, new work. So check this one out. This is good stuff. Enjoy the conversation. Hey guys! Hey guys! Hey guys! This Cajun chicken pasta is one of my favorite recipes to make. Frozen garlic bread? How about 15 minute garlic bread? Because of this recipe, the grocery stores in Finland ran out of feta cheese. If you're ever gonna make a recipe off my page, this is the one. Follow me for more recipes. Welcome, Acamedia listeners. I'm Emily Contois. I'm an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Tulsa and author of Diners, Dudes, and Diets, How Gender and Power Collide in Food, Media, and Culture. And I'm also co-editor of a new edited volume called Food Instagram, Identity, Influence, and Negotiation, which came out on May 31st from the University of Illinois Press. But before I introduce you to this book, I'd like to introduce you to my co-editor and four of our book's 23 wonderful contributors. I'm going to pass it over to Zenia. Thanks, Emily. Hi, my name is Zenia Keish, and I'm an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Tulsa. My work explores global digital media, socio-technical imaginaries of food and agriculture, especially food futures. And I'm writing a book on the media cultures of philanthropic capitalism. Go ahead, Casey. Thank you. Um, my name is Casey Highsmith. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And before returning to grad school, I worked as a food writer and recipe developer and photographer. And through that work kind of stumbled into Insta fame. Um, I still wanted to kind of push the envelope. So I returned to graduate school. And this is where I now study the intersections of gender, food history, labor, and digital media. Sarah. 
My name is Sarah Tracy, and I'm an historian of contemporary um, science and technology focusing on food. I did my PhD at the University of Toronto, and right now I'm finishing up a book called Delicious, and it is about the history of the fifth taste sensation, umami, and its food additive counterpart, MSG. Tara. Hi, um, I'm Tara Schuwerk. I'm an associate professor of communication and media studies at Stetson University in Deland, Florida. And most of my research revolves around the intersections of communication, culture, and identity, with the focus on food within those intersections, such as hunger relief and media representations of food. And last but not least, Mike. Hi, I'm Michael Newman. I'm a professor in the Department of English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and in the program in Media Cinema and Digital Studies. And my work ranges over film, television, and new media. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, we're really thankful to all of you for leading us to think about the platform and food media from so many different directions that we definitely wouldn't have come up with all of these um, ways of thinking about it um, on our own. So just a little bit of background on the book, how it came together, and a couple of the key contributions we see it making. We... Um, started talking about four years ago almost. Emily came to me with this idea for a book. A publisher had approached her and said, hey, have you noticed there's no book on food and Instagram yet? Um, you wanna do it? And so we talked it over a little bit and, and we're both thrilled and kind of daunted by the idea. And as we started looking into what was already out there, we were rather surprised um, that there was, first of all, not a ton of a published scholarship, um, especially in terms of mono length, uh, monograph length, uh, books about Instagram. And there was comparatively little about Instagram and food specifically. So there's a number of reasons for this, and it has been changing in the years since we started the project, but we decided that it was absolutely uh, a really fun and, and exciting moment to think about food as an entry point for um, this visually rich um, mode of production um, on, on the platform. So we decided to pull this book together to explore the aesthetic productions and technological affordances of this intersection of food and Instagram. So this really led us to this formulation of what over the course of the project, we've come to identify as sort of a quasi genre on the platform, which we call food Instagram. And we see this being distinguished by a set of sort of recognizable, if ongoing um, and evolving aesthetic conventions um, that share a focus on representations of food, eating, but also a broader ecosystem of food related phenomena. And so one of the exciting things about this book is that we really look at many different points along our our food and agricultural system. And the other distinguishing thing about food Instagram as a quasi-genre on the platform is really that um, it's, it's produced collectively through everyday users as well as in industry professionals. And they mix and move between those categories in really interesting ways. Um, and are often their food-related media production is marked by um, a, a really extensive amount of self-reflexivity in the work that they're doing. And a few of the key points that, that we draw out um, that, that skim across the different sections in many of the chapters um, are, first of all, really um, paying attention to the prehistory of food Instagram. We're really interested, as some of our contributors are, in looking at that longer history of different types of visual food 
printed media production, um, back to analog forms of printed text, um, paintings, photography, cookbooks, recipe sharing, and offline communities doing a lot of the work that then evolved and sort of has migrated in interesting ways um, onto food Instagram. Um, we're also really interested, as many of our authors are, in food porn. It's this really curious, fun, um, ever-changing, hard to pin down, but ever provocative idea um, that <clears throat> that allows us to think theoretically about visual productions of food um, and, and, and asks us to pay attention very closely to its aesthetic features, what it communicates, how it communicates, why it spreads and goes viral, and, and what its different significations are. That, that fluidity um, is something that's, that's very distinctive and, uh, and of great theoretical interest um, across the book. And then finally, we lay out um, uh, an overview of some of the specific platform affordances, architecture, and style that go into shaping food Instagram, especially through its aesthetic norms, its practices of sharing, and the different ways that shareability gets performed, um, the textual interplay with images and what that looks like. And also we're very interested in how time, space, and place are constructed. This is Emily again, and so Zinnia and I as co-editors were interested in a number of key features that we were playing with in the introduction, but one of them is this interdisciplinary possibility between media studies and food studies. And so this book is, you know, richly planted in that soil, and we want to see so many more things grow there um, as we think about what work is made possible by thinking uh, through food when we think about media and thinking of food as medium as well. And so in our introduction, we take what, you know, most food studies people write of farm to fork and then on to waste, right? This idea of a food system and a food chain. What happens when we analyze food Instagram as a networked food system, an ecosystem that has these stages all along the way as we think about how it flows from seed all the way to our visual feed and everything that that makes possible. But what doing that analysis reveals so clearly is that Instagram doesn't just represent our food system with these beautiful images that are sometimes quite fun and therapeutic to consume consume, um, fun to produce as well. Um, but what Food Instagram does is help to produce food systems through this visual economy and the rules and codifications that it puts in place, um, that it links farms and farmers to food bloggers, to restaurants, to eaters, um, and a variety of other stakeholders and actors in novel and potentially profitable ways. Um, but that it produces and reproduces an illusion of frictionless food fantasy, um, that there are significant um, so many right examples for us to dig in as we think about access, as we think about equity, as we think about justice within our food system, um, that that all plays out within this food Instagram ecosystem as well. And so in the book, there are three key themes that guide the structure of the book that are in the subtitle. Um, the first being identity. Um, we, you know, draw from Brilliant Severin's idea of, you know, tell me what you eat and I will tell you who you are, which we often see, uh, you know, crudely reduced to you are what you eat, which we have seen transform in the age of social media to you are what you post. Uh, and so we start there, right, thinking about um, chapters that are looking at how does Instagram help to produce, reflect, shape, resist, um, ideas of gender, race, class, regionality, nationhood, health, the body, and the self um, in ways 
um, that are really fascinating and how they circulate in this digital space. Uh, the second key theme is influence, right? Obviously, influencers have been one of the most key uh, aspects of Instagram that many people have thought about. And so we were interested in not just those influencers, but also food marketing and their relationship to influencers. Um, things like health messaging, which you will hear more from Tara today, um, consumer perceptions, and also cross-media relationships um, that we saw efforts, for example, of bloggers trying to build a platform on Instagram so they could get a legacy media foothold, right? A cookbook deal, a food television show on more traditional broadcast TV. Um, so we're very interested in those flows back and forth between media old and new. And then lastly, as we edited the book, this third category of negotiation um, is one that's so interesting as we see how um, users deploy Instagram to resist some of the aesthetic norms that Instagram ability and food porn made so hegemonic, uh, but also how is feminism enacted on this platform? We have multiple examples of that in the book. Um, how is Instagram and food, right, this opportunity to express political critique um, and to reimagine consumer relations um, through food and its many meanings? Um, and then we have Sarah here who can tell us more, how do we use Instagram to teach? What amazing pedagogical opportunities are here when we think about food and Instagram. And so with that little overview, I'm happy to pass it back to Xenia for some questions and discussion with our amazing contributors who are here with us. Thank you. Now we'd like to hand the platform over to all of you um, and are very interested, just as a quick little opener, uh, to hear just a little bit from each of you about what food related um, practices or visuality or um, or other Instagram uses um, were part of your life previously, whether that's in your personal use of these media platforms or whether it was already part of your research interests or scholarship. Maybe KC, you'd be a, a great person to start with here. I worked very deeply in the world of food media before I came back to grad school. I did do my MA in gastronomy, so I was already kind of one foot on, in the public-facing world and one foot still in the, in the academic world. Um, so I was trying to navigate that and then somehow became this Instagram influencer uh, very much overnight. It is not necessarily the same way it happens today. So Instagram was very much a part of my life. I posted on it regularly. I did lots of different collaborations with small folks, big folks, uh, all sorts of media. And it's it was a very different world of Instagram about uh, five, seven years ago. And uh, so it was it was everything. And then, you know, realizing how immersed I was in that world made me realize I wanted to unpack it further through some scholarly lenses. I'll jump on quickly because I think I'm a great counterpart to Casey. I'm like the in, the anti-Instagram influencer. I'm I'm kind of a surly introvert who thinks, no, another platform, another avatar. It's too much. I can't keep up. Um, but it became very clear to me teaching my students that I couldn't, as a science and technology studies scholar, as a philosopher who is so interested in how snippets of science circulate in popular culture, how they get taken up and tied into identity in our own political positions. I couldn't talk about those things in an interdisciplinary classroom without engaging Instagram. It's made my classroom um, engagement so much more interesting. Mike, didn't you have a food Instagram before we started this book? <laughs> well, I love taking pictures. I like to take pictures of food, among other things. I've been sharing food in a blog on Flickr, I feel like it's been going on for a long time. I was also really interested in food TV as an object of study. 
I'd written an essay about everyday Italian with Giada De Laurentiis, and I spent so many hours watching the Food Network. I was fascinated enough with that to want to write about it in relation to matters of taste, consumption, cultural status. So coming to food and Instagram for me um, was about finding an objective study that would allow me to think deeply about food and media in relation to one another. So like Sarah, I think I came to this through my students. So I am not an Instagram user. Um, I am not much of a social media user at all. My, you know, most of my research comes at food from a human communication standpoint, um, not mediated um, necessarily through social media, but it just kept coming up from my students more and more their comments that they made in class, the types of projects that they wanted to do um, revolved around Instagram a lot and came to it, like Mike said, in a way that I really needed to, to look at this in an in-depth way. And after, um, so at Stetson, students have to do a senior research project and after three or four years in a row of students just clamoring to look at Instagram influencers in all of these different ways, I was like, okay, this is where I need to step in um, and make sure that that I'm staying, you know, at the front end of where this is going, especially for my students. And so that's how I, I came to this chapter. Thank you for all of those very interesting insights and different relationships. I'm sure like many of you, we've also seen um, our students' relationships with Instagram change over the last several years. I'm certainly hearing different things now about how they use it than you know five years ago even. Um, so next, I'd love to ask each of you to very briefly summarize what you wrote about. What is your contribution to the book and how does it connect with Food Instagram? Uh, so my chapter, uh, My Life and Labor as an Instagram Influencer Turned Instagram Scholar, a lovely title, um, examines the personal, political, and professional intersections of being Insta-famous. So what Insta-famous means, what that means to be an influencer, the definitions, which there's no set definition, uh, the cultural and logistics of that particular life, and how the roles of food influencers and their labor has evolved with the platform, which has evolved a lot, like we said, in the past five years. And I look at both the digital labor as well as the emotional labor, the intersection of which is often managed mostly by women and other marginalized workers. And I use this chapter to unpack how food influencers, such as myself, build an identity and work to reconstruct and resist gendered economies. So my chapter is the last chapter in the book, and it, I think it's only nine pages. It's the shortest academic paper I've ever written, and it's just like in and out. It is kind of my requiem to my academic teaching life because um, I've since gone into consulting and, and pivoting as everyone has pivoted in the last two years into other other zones. So I did a postdoctoral fellowship at UCLA in this beautiful interdisciplinary department where I was working with students who wanted to think like a social scientist and um, a frontline healthcare worker professional. So most of my students wanted to pursue careers in nutrition or public health or medicine. So I crafted a course. I was given the dream of, of academics, which was to do a course about whatever you want. And I had a small-ish group of upper-level students. So my chapter is about how I took a um, core concept from science and technology studies, Latour's idea of the black box, and have scientific ideas become invisible, much like the digital and emotional labor that Casey talks about in her chapter behind the beautiful grids of Instagram. How does their success and their um, mobility make them seem natural or self-evident or natural and inevitable? So I took the 
the that concept and basically tried to make it speak to what my students were bringing to the classroom, which was, I feel like it's true because I saw it on social media. So I took some of my um, main projects from UCLA and then my next teaching um, appointment, which was in the new school to, to kind of bridge the country and bridge these two different classrooms, two different, um, different disciplinary traditions, science and technology studies and food studies to try to um, help students develop some critical uh, literacy around the social media that they were consuming and to try to think through all of the moral claims that they were consuming in social media about what they should eat and who, what they shouldn't. And that was, of course, so closely tied to who should you be and who should you not be. Um, my chapter is called Hot Dudes and Hummus and the Cultural Politics of Food. And it's about an Instagram account that went viral in 2016 which is exactly what it sounds like. It's photos of attractive men eating hummus. I have to say, I came to this project from an obsession with hummus. And I'd, I'd been looking for a way into writing about it because I thought there was so much to say. It's semiotically rich. It's something I grew up with, um, which I thought of as an Israeli food. And as I've learned more about the world, I recognized it as um, an object over which there's much conflict, but also uh, you know, in North America, in my experience, Hummus is not always closely identified with Israel or Palestine or with any particular place. So I thought there was a lot there to explore in terms of the variability of meaning around food. Um, I was also really intrigued by this particular account because of the food porn angle of the, the way that desire is aroused in the, the user of Instagram, as in many instances of food media, to arouse our desire and to ignite fantasies of consumption or other kinds of sensory experience. This was a genre of Instagram feed that was popular at the time of hot dudes with kittens or coffee or reading books. And it was a genre. I'm not sure that they're big anymore. It's one of the funny things about doing research about contemporary topics is by the time it's published, you think of it as historical, but at the moment it was so vital. And I was interested in exploring what the meanings behind this this viral hummus account were, uh, and in particular, what, what was interesting to me is that it was an Israeli account, and it was started by some Israeli students as a form of citizen diplomacy to brand Israel as progressive and as appealing to the LGBTQ community and to the West. And most of the Instagram users who were following and commenting on the account evidently were in English-speaking places in Europe or in North America. Um, and this is to kind of make Israel have these positive associations in the eyes of these folks, as opposed to associating Israel with occupation and um, you know, militarism and terrorism and, and very negative associations. So I'm not sure that that message got through to the users in the United States and elsewhere in the West, but I was interested in exploring that and kind of picking it apart and thinking about the variability of, of the meanings of these images of the social media account and the comments that people make, which are tend to be as, as much focused on the, the cute guys as on the hummus, and to think about it in the larger context of the cultural politics of food. That's good. I, I think that Mike's is one of the first chapters to come in. And I just remember being directed to this feed of hot dudes and hummus, which I had not looked at before. And as soon as I started seeing the rich potential of images for the book, I thought, okay, we've picked the right book and we're going to have the best pictures of any media studies book this year or, or beyond. And as the rest of the chapters came in, this was quickly confirmed. <laughs> 
So the, the chapter that I contributed um, with Sarah Kramer is called Repackaging Leftovers, Health, Food, and Diet Messages in Influencer Instagram Posts. And the idea came to us through a student who was really interested in um, Instagram, and she was a student in, in my Department of Communication and Media Studies, but also at the time was minoring in Stetson's um, Sustainable Food Systems program. And so we started looking at influencers connected to food and basically came to the conclusion that in our sample, at least, the influencers that we looked at were often repackaging the same food and health discourses that are, are often experienced in other areas of mass media and even in interpersonal contexts regarding, you know, food expertise and diets and identity. Looking at the influencers in our sample, um, we saw that they tended to market themselves as experts whose advice should be followed while completely ignoring their privilege and how their identities and even that the identities of their followers are, are intertwined with food and food ways. And so the discourse, uh, images, hashtags, very similar to diet culture that traditionally pushes rigid eating patterns um, in the guise of health and that their posts were really rooted in individualized perspectives of food um, and health with, with minimal, if any, discussed connection to a larger food system. And as they, you know, talk directly to their audiences, little accountability or verifications of the claims that they were making. And so we see that in a lot of other places when we start talking about food and our diet culture. And even though the influencers are kind of pushing forward this idea that there's this food freedom, um, they're just kind of repackaging the same thing that, that their followers should be listening to them. They're just kind of repackaging. It is a leftover being served to us that we see in the discourses in other places in diet culture. Thank you all so much for sharing with us about your chapters. I hope listeners, this is just four, right, of 17 chapters, that there are so many fascinating case studies. Uh, and Zenya, in her opening comments, right, was saying that Instagram has been studied less than other social media apps. When you think about Facebook or Twitter, um, or even something like YouTube or Snapchat, as we think about Instagram, that there was this inequity. Um, and so we'd love to hear from each of you as you think about what role Instagram plays in this broader social media ecosystem. And do you see it changing as we do, right, with other platforms like TikTok, right? Like Zenia and I gripe sometimes, we've just finished this book on food Instagram that we're so proud of and everyone wants to talk to us about TikTok. Um, so we'd love to broach that question about broader social media ecosystem. And if we have TikTok thoughts, this is where we can let them free. Uh, Casey, would you like to start us? Uh, sure. I should also disclose that I am the social media director for the Museum of Food and Drink in New York. <laughs> um, so I am deeply immersed in this world, both uh, professionally and uh, you know, in scholarly fashion. Instagram, you know, it, in the past few months has undergone some intense changes that has really kind of um, upended and and confused users, I think, both, both just individual users and then broad, big organizations, larger companies, um, and across the spectrum of type of users. Um, I think it's really kind of made it to where people aren't sure where it fits into the broader spectrum anymore. Um, there was a reckoning with Facebook, and all of these, of course, are kind of our interpretations of social media platforms, right? They're not necessarily like hard and true uh, 
you know, the way an, a platform is going. It's all a social interpretation of it. So there was a reckoning with Facebook a few years ago about it kind of aging out of the younger social media uh, user base. And Instagram, according to everyone in my professional networks, that's kind of where it's going as well. So which is which is wildly fascinating um, and that it's swiftly being you know, replaced with TikTok. Um, but if you actually look at the statistics, there are more millennials on TikTok than any other age group. Um, the statistics are kind of wonky for Instagram right now as it's undergoing some of these major transitions. Um, and then a lot of this also comes down to the lack of transparency with each platform from its from its parent organization. Um, you know, we can't see some of the statistics on uh, Instagram and Facebook that we used to because of the the new ownership, the way the ownership has evolved. Whereas on TikTok, we can see some other things. What do you think, Sarah? I am woefully unqualified to comment on TikTok. I, I have resisted thus far. I like the, the meme that went around about how I get my TikTok content two weeks late, like a proper adult. So this is where I am. Um, so I'm going to defer to Casey and all the rest of you as to TikTok. But I, I'd like to hear your thoughts about this, actually, about how that platform differs or what is it about Instagram that makes it so um, powerful as a, as a marketing and a sponsorship platform? Because I don't know if TikTok is having that same type of, of cultural impact. Um, what I really I felt Instagram lent itself well to classroom conversations about um, social media and visuality in particular was that I was already looking theoretically and historically about the, the significance of the visual to American uh, advertising and marketing culture and the way that um, beauty ideals and how gender is so powerfully communicated on Instagram. I don't know how it differs for TikTok or if there's more of a a playfulness or a, or impermanence to TikTok. Instagram seems to lend itself very, very well to um, to branding. So the the conversations that students were having were about the the impact that Instagram had on driving their consumer behavior, both in the sense as eaters and as where they spend their dollars and where do they spend their 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 ideas. Like where is their where are they ideating toward and how does Instagram in particular have a have a role on that. I, I will leave it to Tara to pick up because I know your paper was specifically with regard to how does this affect those two narratives that were key in my classroom conversations. What should I and what do I want to eat? So I think, right, also not as a, as a user um, of Instagram or TikTok, I think that there is something about, you know, each iteration of a social media platform that is fulfilling you know, this space that users need something. They don't always know what they need until it's given to them sometimes. And each time we move from something like Facebook to Instagram to TikTok, there's something that's drawing in in users. And it may be that, you know, a generational thing, right? Like I've heard plenty of my students say, oh, well, we can't use Facebook anymore because they're the, my mom is on there, my, my grandma is on there. And, and so they moved to Instagram and I'm seeing the same thing now where they're saying, yeah, like, like all of the businesses are now using Instagram. And so we're moving to this other thing. So I think it's really hard to predict what the next like crevice is that needs to be filled to, to grab users. But I do see something about Instagram um, and the TikToks that I have seen that there's a lot of curation, right? The, the aesthetic of, of this beautiful 
person, this beautiful food that works really well on Instagram, it definitely causes exclusion of some other things, which I think is problematic, but they can, as an Instagram user or influencer, you can take the time to create this beautiful thing to put out there. And I don't see TikTok being used quite in the same way. What I am seeing um, on, on food TikTok is a sensory experience that I haven't gotten on Instagram. And so, you know, the, the idea that we can see people interacting in a way that's a little bit different on TikTok than on Instagram, that allows me to have a better sensory experience with the food that is, is in that TikTok. And, and so that's where I kind of see it going. Um, and I'm really interested in, in how that's going to play out. I think since the moment that a lot of us worked on these chapters, video has become more important to Instagram. Instagram has tried to copy TikTok's basic format um, with its reels. And video and photography have a lot in common, but video is pretty different. Also, the kind of pedagogical nature of these videos, teaching you how to make a breakfast sandwich or how to turn your leftovers into a meal, is, is, is in some ways different from the kind of perfection that the photograph can offer. The process can be kind of messy, but it's also teaching you how to do something. Um, I would also say that a lot of the content on TikTok and Instagram is the same, especially for very popular creators. Smitten Kitchen, as far as I could tell, is putting the same stuff in both places. And other, other folks like that who are quite popular are just putting their stuff everywhere. So it might not be as different as we imagine. You know, if you look at any of the major new uh, food media publications online or in print, they're all talking about viral TikTok recipes, too. Um, you know, whether or not they're referencing a single video or not is, is another aspect of it. But the recipe itself or the trend itself, it's all coming from TikTok. And I haven't seen very many um, instances of, you know, an Instagram viral recipe recently. Not that they're not happening, but it very it has a different or, um, you know, origin spot. So I think for us within the book, we're sort of tracking in part this trajectory of Instagram ability, um, this idea of the food Instagram aesthetic that was so hegemonic of these perfectly curated images that then users, right, start to resist and to rewrite what is the aesthetic conventions um, within Instagram and within food Instagram that we see the anti-food porn and the ugly food and the less curated content. And so we see TikTok actually sort of picking up um, exactly this trajectory of food porn um, that, you know, goes all the way back to, um, you know, still lifes and cinema and, you know, magazine content and blogs. And then Instagram, right, takes it to a different place to a different level. Um, and so this uh, transformation into what we see happening on TikTok, like we can definitely see that within this larger lineage. Um, and so I think maybe that's one of the possibilities that I'd love to ask, you know, each of our contributors to reflect on of this interdisciplinary proposition we put forward, right? Of what does this intersection between media studies and food studies make possible? Studying, you know, having this intersection of media and food studies really allows us to get at that complicated amount and intersection of labors that we don't necessarily see, whether that's because of the black box of our phone um, or the video being perfectly edited, whether that's on TikTok or Reels. Um, there's so much that we don't see there. Um, and that's what I really like to get at is, is looking behind the scenes at, you know, what, what it takes to get, as you said earlier, Emily, too, about the seed to uh, seed to something, seed to screen or something. Um, 
how how we go about that. And then all the people's, you know, not just the the food itself, but the labor involved for that. And then now with this new, with these new media formats, whether that's Reels again or TikTok or the variation on Reels. And now YouTube also has a variation on that as well. Um, learning all the different formats because none of them are the same um, and ha- somehow storing that information or being able to use that and teach it in a pedagogical way. There's just so many intersections for studying labor um, that I think a lot of people might even not count as labor. So I think there's a lot there. Thanks, Casey. Sarah, what are your thoughts here? So what I loved about dabbling in media studies in this book was to to show the background work. So to to look at and to peel back how how does a scientific study get produced and how is it similar and different from the way that someone's Instagram feed is curated um, or the way that Bon Appetit or a magazine spread is put together or the way um, a shirtless man with hummus is portraying something like what are all the meanings and the relations that get made invisible by just the visual or the finished product or that transferable statistic that you can pull it at a dinner party that says, actually, did you know butter doesn't kill you, doesn't cause heart disease? I wanted to to help students think about um, all of the all of the infrastructural kind of inheritances that come together that are working. Um, for me, what I liked about Instagram was that it helped them have a an immediate sense of relevance to the way a scientific claim can traffic and then even get exploded or go viral. Tara, your thoughts? I think that bridging food studies and media studies, there's there's lots of room for interdisciplinarity, which is very exciting, um, especially in terms of popular culture or American studies or just food systems in general and the way all of these things interact. And so, you know, I, I definitely come at it from a human communication standpoint and looking at some of the, the humanness of the, the media and the food and how those things come together. I really think that, you know, as people are experiencing food in their lives, um, there's a lot here for us to look at, you know, to bring in, Um, you know, nutritionists to think about how this is um, affecting or involving science, um, looking at how, you know, different generations are experiencing food, how they're experiencing media, putting those things together. I I really am excited about, you know, the, the idea that we can bring all of these disciplines together to look at something like this. And I think it, it makes us all better scholars. It makes us all better teachers to think about all of the different ways these things are interacting um, just by looking at something like food and Instagram. I think that one of the ways that food studies and media studies can talk to each other is is by thinking about our lived experience and about how media and food are both, um, for most of us, part of our everyday lives that have meaning, um, that are fulfilling to us, sometimes also vexing or challenging, um, and that are political in ways we don't always acknowledge to ourselves or more broadly. Um, And they're both forms of consumption as well, but also you know, much um, signification or symbolic activity and meaning. And I think sometimes for media scholars, we think of our object of study as distant from us. It's just kind of come from somewhere else and we receive it and we make sense of it or interpret it. But I, I also think that um, looking at media as something we do in our own lives and in our communities in a, in a way is um, similar to thinking about 
food and eating. Thank you all for sharing your thoughts there. Hopefully this will encourage others to join us at this interdisciplinary juncture between media and food studies. And so I know one of the things Zenia and I thought a lot about with the book, given the visual nature of Instagram is, oh my gosh, what are we going to put on the cover? Um, that we wanted this to be a book that in, on one level, right, is sort of playing out um, these gorgeous aesthetic conventions that we know are a part of food Instagram. Um, but we also wanted it to represent the layered level and amount of critique that each of these chapters is bringing forth. And so we were so lucky that we had Casey not only as a really brilliant contributor of a chapter, but someone who is a baker, a food stylist, a food photographer, um, to really help us bring that idea to life. How do we put that on the cover? Um, so Casey, if you just want to tell us a little bit about the story of how did you help us come up with this amazing book cover photo? Well, that's very flattering. That's very sweet. Like Emily said, I, I do lots of food styling for different things and, and a lot of it is ends up being cake. And, you know, we wanted it to be something that, you know, spoke to what we we're talking about, you know, actually eating kind of the medium and, you know, things that that entails, all the metaphors. So we went with a cell phone and I remember Emily and I were texting back and forth about exactly what cell phone it should be. Should it be an Android or an Apple phone? <laughs> and, um, and then what image should it be? And I, I follow lots of cake bakers on Instagram and other, other uh, food photographers and kind of created a cake uh, made out of a uh, frosting entirely that, you know, was an amalgamation of all these different cakes that I enjoy seeing very, very retro looking, very bright and colorful. Um, and then styled it with just things that I had in my home. Um, I, you know, remember when I got each of these things, they have a lot of meaning to me, maybe not so to other people, but that's kind of the exciting part about un unpacking an image on Instagram is understanding all of the different meanings behind each of the items that are in the photo. Yeah. And I think we also loved, like we talked, right? Like, do we have a dirty knife? Do we have a clean knife? Right? Like what, you know, how do we position that? And so showing, you know, the little bit of mess, right? And when we talk about sort of this pornification of food labor, right? That's made invisible. Um, and I remember, right? Like your husband had to watch the kids, right? Like the labor that it took, right? For you to be able to do this. I remember the sun was going down. We had to get yeah. the shot. The kids were coming home. Um, that this is sort of the reality of how these images are made. And that that was a part of the sort of the labor of love, Right, to be able to create this 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 cover for our particular book. Well, I uh, to round out this really rich and interesting conversation, I'd like to invite everyone uh, if you have. Uh, ideas or plans for future research connected to either food Instagram or something very adjacent or related to it or growing out of the work that you did here. We'd love to hear, do you have a dream project you'd like to explore related to food and social media or, or any thoughts more broadly about where you'd like to see this, um, this research at the intersection of, of food and, and media studies go and grow in the future? The, the thing that I loved that emerged as a main theme in the book um, was the prosumption theme as well as food porn. These things are so rich for someone who's interested in, in science and technology studies or food studies because like for my, for example, my book research is um, focused on how the eater creates the value of the food commodity itself. So MSG is a flavor enhancer. It's just one example. There's all kinds of flavoring additives. But the, these type of things are largely chemically inert and they don't do a whole lot of work in the world until we eat them. And, and so the idea of prosumption from media studies or cultural studies is really interesting for me to think about as an SDS scholar, to think about how cultural formations and um, ways that ideas circulate on something like, an like a, a social media app 
echo ways that um, our realities and possibilities are also an affordance, perhaps if I could, you know, borrow that term. How are how are things made possible in our bodies and in our world, or how are our, our mechanisms of health shut down um, by by um, a technology? Um, also, the food porn. Um, when I was working with students at the new school, I wanted to talk and read about the neurobiology of food porn because the brain scan images, when someone is consuming images of what we call food porn versus uh, conventional or sexual pornography, the brain scans look the same. So I think this is so fascinating when we're trying as particularly um, feminist scholars or scholars of gender um, um, to normalize the ways that the way we relate, how we consume other people's bodies or relate to them um, are an important thing to have in the forefront of our conversations and not to compartmentalize sexuality. Um, I think it's ex extremely important and food is a nice way in to say, you know, we all eat. What else do we all do? Let's have critical open conversations about the way these things are interconnected. So I'm not I'm not sure I have a dream project specifically. I am really interested in identity and how food and media wrap around that. And so I would like to, you know, probably pursue a little bit of that, especially um, on Instagram and food in indigenous communities. And I would really like to spend some time there and, and see what's going on. Um, I'm also really interested in hunger relief and how social media and food justice is coming together, especially in areas of, you know, local hunger relief. How are, you know, how's the, the local food pantry using social media to help move their cause forward to support the community? I don't have something in the works, so I'm only thinking about what would be exciting in the future. I think a great sequel to this book would be Food TikTok. And um, I'm not sure if, if, if y'all had in mind a sequel. Um, I really do think that the, the continuities between past and present in media, um, when it comes to food, are worth looking into more deeply, like the continuity between cooking shows and the, the kind of instruction that we find in Instagram and TikTok and think about a kind of longer story about how food and media have been presented to, the, to a kind of consuming public and um, part of how we're made to imagine the good life or what, what a good life could be like. And um, my chapter in this uh, book actually is uh, drawn on part of my dissertation research, which is currently titled hashtag food history. And it traces the legacy of women's food um, and resistance throughout uh, the U.S., starting in the suffrage era, looking um, up to now and kind of figuring out what we can learn about past mistakes um, from previous feminist movements, um, especially concerns of white feminism and capitalism and how that's being played out in digital spaces and landscapes today and what we can take away from that and how we've evolved as well. Thank you to our contributors for laying out where they're going. We hope that these ideas are exciting to those who are listening too. If you'd like to join us in this fascinating world of food Instagram. Um, thank you so much to Casey, Sarah, Tara, and Mike for being here to share their work today. I am so thankful that Xenia wanted to co-edit this book with me. Um, and thank you to everyone listening. We hope that you enjoy our conversation and that you might be interested in the book.
Thank you all for joining us. And please check out our book published by University of Illinois Press. You can get it um, on discount, 30% off right now through the end of the year with S22UIP. Thanks very much to Acamedia for hosting us. You know, they covered so many interesting things in that conversation, um, but I have to remark on what is maybe the most fascinating line ever spoken on an ACA Media podcast, and that is, I came to this project from an obsession with hummus. You know, it's, it's so beautiful. I mean, we've had some pretty good lines, I think, and they didn't all come from either of us. I mean, there's, we've got some uh, pretty uh, fantastic quippers out there, but <laughs> man, I never even thought of hummus as a site of... Uh, fascination or is it like a fetish thing? I mean, I don't know what the deal is with hummus, but. Well, I, and I love just like the fact that I can't imagine those words have all been put together in a sentence before, but also like what that symbolizes about everything in that conversation about how you've got this combination of scholars and, and curators, and they're all just kind of fascinated by what they're seeing on Instagram and on TikTok and wanting to you know write about it, talk about it, share these ideas. I mean, it's sort of like a fundamental element of what we all do, not to get too grand about it, but as academics, what we want to do and what we do here on this podcast. So kind of, I come to this project from an obsession with hummus is actually like a really good distillation of, of why we're here and why we do what we do. That is so completely it. Yeah. Yeah. That like the pathways <laughs> in are always like, you never know what it's going to be. Yeah. But um, that passion and curiosity that is the like the real engine of inquiry. It's really great to hear people talking about that. Yeah. And so thank you all to those who put that together. So first of all, Stephanie Brown for spearheading that project and uh, recording and editing that piece. We also had uh, the editors of the of the collection Food Instagram Identity Influence and Negotiation. That was Emily J.H. Contois and Xenia Kish. We also had uh, in that conversation some of the contributors from that book, Casey Highsmith, Sarah Tracy, Tara Schuerk, and Michael Newman. And we thank them all for their brilliance and insights. Of course, we are also grateful for the help of our co-conspirators and collaborators here at the Acamedia Compound. And so in addition to Stephanie, we've got Frank Mondelli at Stanford University. We've got Diana De Pasquale, who's working on some really interesting pieces about improv comedy. And uh, we should have those, I think, the next episode. I think so. Uh, we're also uh, unable to do our work without the golden ears of Todd Thompson at the University of Texas. And there is way up there in the great white north, Bill Kirkpatrick at University of Winnipeg. All right. Uh, the boring end. Stay cool out there. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> Thanks for listening.